0: listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestcolona.ca Now, if you are a coupon clipper or a deal finder, it can be so frustrating when you go to cash out on your one or two dollar coupon savings only to find out that that coupon has expired or for some reason in the fine print you find out that that coupon is not valid in your area and you are ticked and you're like, oh, so frustrating. Or perhaps you purchased tickets for a concert or for a sold-out sporting event and, and, and you thought you had taken all the necessary precautions only to be turned away at the door to find out that you had been scammed by some sort of a scam artist of some sort. And we're told today you have to be so careful in so many different uh, areas of life with identity theft, with getting with fraud, uh, fraud artists out there, and different scams that are taking place. There are so many fraudsters, so many scam artists, and they're getting smarter and smarter as the days go on. But Jesus, too, he was concerned about scams. He was concerned about scam religion, about false teachers. And when it comes to people thinking that they have the real deal, that their in a sense, their ticket for eternity has been stamped and they're ready to go whenever that should happen when they pass from this earth. And they think that they have the real deal, possessing an authentic faith, only to find out, not at the cash register, not at the ticket wicket, but in front before the God of this universe, And he says, I'm sorry, I don't know you. I do not recognize you as one of my own. You see, this concern is more serious than expired coupons or scam tickets. This is to deal with eternal destinies. It's about us thinking and people today thinking all across our world in this room here today. In churches gathered throughout the Okanagan in Canada, North American around this world. People who think that they possess a saving faith, thinking their future is secure in heaven, when in fact it may not be. And as Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount, he does so with a very sober warning and a call to examine our lives The stakes of what we're talking about here today and the stakes of what Jesus in how he's ending his sermon, it's huge. They are eternal. No going back. No serve five years, ten years of your sentence away from God in hell, and then all of a sudden you'll get a get out of jail or get out of hell free cart. Not gonna happen. The stakes are high, but there's also good news here this morning. There's good news in Jesus' sermon. And here it is. Encourage you to be writing these notes down here today because they're life-giving, they're life-changing. And, and here is basically what we're talking about here this morning. We can experience true and eternal confidence this morning. You and I can experience true and eternal confidence because of Jesus. And Jesus desires as he closes his sermon and as we bring this sermon series to a close, he desires no misplaced confidence in this room today. He he desired no misplaced confidence in that crowd that was listening to him or whoever would read this passage between now and eternity. And Jesus desires that that no one, God's word tells us, that he desires that no one would perish, but all would come to repentance. And, and this is the heart of our God. This is the heart of Jesus. And so let's listen to these words as Jesus speaks here in Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 21. Follow along, eyes down, looking at your Bibles. Encourage you to follow along. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, but Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them the most devastating words a person could ever hear. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Devastation. Most devastating words you could ever hear. These words sober us and cause us to examine our lives, examine the word of God, examine our lives, and then also have a concern for those around us. Now I'm sure that all of us can recall hearing at one point, one time or another in our lives some very devastating words. Maybe some of those words have happened more recently or maybe they happened years ago and it's almost when you even start thinking about it now, you almost kind of start reliving that very moment when you heard those words. Words like, it's cancer. Or another serious illness. Or when the doctors say, there's nothing more we can do. Or the phone rings And on the other line, they said, there's been an accident. Your loved one, they're not going to make it. Or hearing those words, you're fired. Or I want you out of my life forever. Or when someone says, I hate you. Or when someone who you thought once loved you and you still love says, I want a divorce. Words upon hearing them leaves you shaken, even perhaps lightheaded, speechless, devastating, ruined. Probably you can all think of that time or two when that's happened. I'll never forget these words of Matthew chapter 7, the first time I really heard them. Grew up in church, went to college, Bible college, pastor for a good number of years. And it was about 11 years ago that these words of Jesus from Matthew 7 shook me to my inner core. I had read this passage 11 years ago on a particular day earlier in the day and then later on I was standing out in the church parking lot. Picture of the church uh, that that we were serving at in Alberta at the time. A church we had been pastoring for, for, for probably 10 years by this time all the marks of a successful church. We had just finished a major building expansion, that nice big long part you see there in the picture, we had just finished that. It was a great time, was a difficult time, a stretching time. All the marks of a successful church in a small town to have a booming church like that. Over the the, the years previous to that, had baptized around 150 people, making a profound difference in the community as the body of Christ, making a real difference, being salt and light, seeing some amazing things happen. And yet, I remember standing in the parking lot. In fact, X will even mark the spot exactly where, pretty much to the point where I was standing that day. When I was talking to a gentleman in his truck, and all of a sudden, in my conversation with him, and the passage I had read earlier, just all of a sudden, it wasn't a light bulb moment, it was more of a devastating moment. You see, I was disillusioned and confused because I'd watch people who were once on fire for the Lord walk away from Him. Or I'd watch people who confessed Christ and yet were not willing to forgive someone who had hurt them, offended them, said some, something about them, causing devastating devastation in that relationship, leading to rifts. And silly church politics. Or watching people become distracted. Chasing after the pleasures and the comforts and the pull and the lusts of the world. And I remember being disillusioned in in my heart. And then this passage comes to life. and, and, And in talking about this in this Matthew 7 passage then. And it continues still to this day to devastate, at times confuse And sober me. And I believe this passage calls each one of us to examine our own lives. The Apostle Paul, numerous times he said, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine your heart, examine your life. Don't take it for granted. And God's word, as we desire to work through major portions of scripture, as we have in detail over the last 11 months going through the Sermon on the Mount, we can't ignore this last, these last few statements that Jesus makes. It'd be easy, much easier to ignore these words, but could be eternally devastating if we do. Dear ones, may today we hear God's word, the authority of God's word here this morning. And with the Spirit, as God's Word speaks and the Holy Spirit convicts, would we be ready to respond? Would we be ready to slay the sin, the pride, the false assumptions that we are living with, that we are banking on, that are not real, true security for the life to come? Perhaps we've lived this way for years and for decades, and today, if this Message does not cause you to examine your own heart. I'm greatly concerned for you. If this message doesn't end in greater worship and love and adoration for our God, I am deeply concerned for you. These are terrifying verses, and yet they're also life giving verses. Jesus desires that none of us here today would have a misplaced confidence. And he tells us how we can know that we can experience true confidence, that eternal destinies are at stake. And so these words, yes, are devastating as Jesus pronounced them, pronounces these words. But we have to understand Jesus isn't just saying these words to agnostics or atheists or to hardened criminals. He's not saying these words to thieves or to terrorists. He's not saying this to people who, who openly... Or even in their own hearts, mock God just quietly in their own hearts. He's not saying this to people who willfully choose to defy or ignore him. No, these words, these devastating words are for those people who have had that come to Jesus moment. Who have walked the aisle, raised their hand, were baptized, attended church maybe almost every Sunday. They've been involved in church ministry in Christian ministry. They've gone to prayer meetings. They went on mission trips. They gave large sums of money. These words could be for those people with great biblical knowledge. Could be for pastors, for elders, for church leaders. Those who have the outward behavior and yet have a misplaced confidence. These words are serious. And so here Jesus though tells us how we can have true confidence. And here's This is the big idea. We can experience true and eternal confidence today. However, write this down. Number one, not in lip service. It's not going to happen. True and eternal confidence doesn't come through lip service. Look at what Jesus says here. Jesus is telling us that the ones who will hear depart from me, I never knew you, are people who said, Lord, Lord. But Lord, Lord, we did these things. We said this. Those are the right words. Lord, Lord. Those are the theologically correct words. They're even said here the way they're written with zeal, with fervency, with emotion. Lord, Lord. Lord, Lord, I worship you. These are words that are reverent words. They are theologically correct words. The right titles rooted in a proper understanding of who Jesus is, that he is the authority. Lord, Lord. You have authority. You're the boss. You're the king. Lord, Lord. There can be profession though. Without a connection. Profession without connection. Profession saying the right words, however, is not proof of genuine faith. Now, the word orthodoxy, and and some of you might say, what is orthodoxy? It may sound like a very painful painful and expensive dental procedure, but it's not. Orthodoxy is actually having the proper beliefs about God. And you can have the proper orthodoxy, proper belief and understanding of God. And don't get me wrong, words are important. It is important to understand words do matter. But words, lip service, paying lip service and knowing the right words to say cannot give you true eternal confidence. Words are important. Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. I encourage you to write down that reference and you'll see it here on the screen. If you confess with your mouth, see? Words, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart, one believes and is justified. And the mouth, one confesses. So words are important. A person who refuses to say, Lord, Lord, will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. All true followers of Jesus Christ will say, Lord, Lord. But not all who say, Lord, Lord, are true Christians. Orthodoxy is where we begin. We need to have proper belief, proper understanding. And, and, and to be clear, we can't grow much in our love of God and our understanding without having a right belief and understanding. We need to understand and grow in our knowledge and understanding of God's holiness and His majesty and His sovereignty. And as we grow in our lives, we understand that in a greater way. But then we also grow and understand even more and more the depths of our sinfulness. It's not you were once a great sinner. We continue to sin. Let's put up that Spurgeon quote. I think that just is very timely at this time. I like this. If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. Look at the apostle Paul. Quit thinking we're high and holy because we're not. It was Paul who said... Oh, wretched man who I, that's towards the end of their life. The guy who planted churches, this missionary, par excellence would be able, I mean, led like hundreds, probably thousands, all of us are here today because of a man and the witness of the apostle Paul. And yet towards the end of his life, he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body? And he understood his sinfulness. When we understand God's holiness and our sinfulness, but understanding that Christ is that cure first and foremost at salvation, and Christ continues to be the cure, we never get away from the gospel. We need to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves and to those around us. We must respond. We must respond to God's holiness, our sinfulness, Christ's sacrifice, Christ being the cure and we respond, initially, we, we respond daily to that. Knowledge does not indicate saving faith. You can have it all up here, and the ticket will not be punched for eternity. One can believe even the teachings of the Bible, the orthodox, the, the solid fundamentalist Teaching of the Word of God can be prepped in reform theology or whatever theology that that you may term yourself to follow under. You can believe that the Bible is divinely inspired, infallible, subscribe to the doctrines and formations that teach the total depravity of man. The inerrancy of scriptures, the substitutionary death and atonement of Christ, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through scripture alone, and to the glory of God alone. We can have that all down. We can know all of that. One can fight and stand and argue and win against heretics and yet not be truly saved. Or even give one's life as a martyr and still miss the mark. Lip service, knowledge, understanding, quoting much of the Bible, having it memorized. We can accumulate all of that and still be far from Him. True and and eternal confidence is not found in lip service. And here's something else. I encourage you to write this down. Or in lifestyle. It's not found in in our religious and our pious and our mighty and our holy and our busyness of lifestyle following Christ. It's not found in lip service or lifestyle. Look at, verse tw- uh, look at the verse here um, in verse 22. But Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? I mean, come on. Look at my resume. Look at what I've done. Jesus is speaking about people with impressive resumes, performing remarkable works, people prophesying, or another word for that is preaching. They're speaking for God. They're doing miracles. They're casting out demons. And I'm doing it all in your name. Now, we might think, you know who he's really just talking about there? It's those TV guys. Those TV guys that, you know, those false preachers that we've been learning about them as we have have watched and encourage you to watch that documentary, the the, uh, Prosperity Gospel, or American Gospel. It's not just for those parading on TV, ripping innocent and vulnerable people off out of their money and their life savings. Performing these so-called miracles when really they're not. But the, you know, here they're saying, "Hey, but I did all of these things. Look at all the crowd. The crowds applaud." No, he's not just talking. He's talking, not just about them. He's talking about normal, non-TV type of people. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. People who do things, say things, do things, serve God, but it wasn't out of a genuine love for him. It's because we've believed. In him because we wanted something from him. Maybe a better life. Hey, follow Jesus, follow the Bible. It's going to be better. It generally is. You're going to be kept from a lot of garbage in life when you follow God's word, when you go to church, when you live the Christian life. It's not always going to be easy. It's going to involve sacrifice, but it is a better way to life. To uphold the standards that God has in, in areas of marriage and raising children and our finances. God's word speaks to all of it. So, I mean, it can be very... Um, Effective, or um, could you say prosperous, to follow the teachings of God's word? But sometimes we come to Jesus just, or because if it's an escape from hell, oh, better pray this, better do this, be busy for the Lord, and, and after all, He will remember me on that day. You see, Jesus just cannot be Lord of some parts of our lives and and, and then not in other parts of our lives. Like we said a few weeks ago, either he is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. He has, if he has 80 or 90% of your heart, it's still 20 or 10% too short. Recently, we were at some some weddings in Alberta, and um, over the course of four weeks, we uh, headed back twice for a a dear friend. Their daughter got married, and... uh, um, and, and then a few weeks ago, we were at a wedding again in the Edmonton area for a nephew of mine that got married. And, and how incredible, how wonderful to see two young people, or four young people, I guess, who have committed their lives to Jesus Christ and, and watched them commit their lives to one another. And their love for Jesus is just, was so evident in their lives leading up to and even at the, at the wedding ceremonies. And, and to, to hear and to see that was, was just so good. Now, wouldn't it have been like super messed up if when they're doing the vows and, and, uh, and, and you know the couple are exchanging their vows and whether they write their own or traditional, if all of a sudden, the groom all of a sudden kind of veers off and pulls out something from his pocket and, and, and says, "Oh yeah, I uh, wrote something up here a little bit." and I vow and I commit." that 163 for 163 hours out of the week I will be faithful to you I will love you I will you know cherish you and honor you but for 5 weeks or 5 hours out of each week I get to do what I want when I want and with whomever I want no questions asked I mean if that if that happened Would that not just be super messed up and you would say, that guy does not love her. That is just a messed up relationship and that's headed towards trouble. But we oftentimes can do the same thing. God, you can have my life. You can have my business, my money, but I can veto or overturn that whenever I want. I don't need to include you. After all, it's you follow me, Jesus, not I follow you. You... I'll plot plot out the course of my life and then you just come along and you just sprinkle blessings along the way. That's messed up. So oftentimes it's, God, here's my plan, now bless it. And if he doesn't come through, if we walk through hardships and trials or it doesn't go as planned, we're mad, we're ticked, and we say, what's up with that, God? Because after all, We're the ones, we don't say it, but in reality, we're the ones controlling our lives and not him. We can say, I've served you faithfully, God. I worked in kids. I worked in youth. I worked in small groups. I was a small group leader. I attended small groups. I've been involved in worship and set up and takedown." And we can still hear those devastating words, depart from me, I never knew you. And he even says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He says, workers of lawlessness or wickedness. That seems harsh. Very harsh. These are people who serve faithfully. These are people who said the right things and did the right things and and he calls them workers of wickedness or workers of lawlessness. But you see what happens is people who declare their allegiance, who even serve faithfully, have the right words, but yet inwardly reject or denounce the authority of Jesus over all of their lives it's workers of law and we can do so much and yet it's missing the mark you see jesus is after the heart the heart matters have you turned your heart towards him has he turned your heart towards him and and this is a beautiful combination that takes place has my heart been turned have i repented have i turned away from my agenda have i turned away have i made a break with sin in my life Or have I allowed and I excuse habitual sin? Say, God, you can have 98% of me, but you're not going to have this one area of my life. This is going to be my own little guilty pleasure. I know you'll understand because your grace is enough. We sing that in church. His grace is enough when we are fully surrendered to him. Not to say we're not going to stumble, we're not going to fall, but when we decide to live in Areas of disobedience and rebellion habitually over time, that is a serious, serious matter. David Platt said this, you can just listen to this quote. We are settling for a Christianity that revolves around catering to ourselves when the central message of Christianity is actually about abandoning ourselves. Saying, God, I surrender to you. What would you have for me in my life? What would you have for me in my day today? And we, it's a daily surrender to him. Has my heart been turned? Has Jesus been given my full heart? Have I placed my trust and my confidence in him? And yes, it is important that we believe and have the right understanding of God sending his one and only son to this earth who came in human flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect sinless life, died on the cross in my place, becoming the substitute, the satisfying payment for the wrath of God that is, that is due me to come, that is due for me to come my way. Taking the punishment I deserve and then believing that he rose again, conquering sin and death on the third day. That's important to believe that, but have I surrendered to him initially and am I continuing to surrender to him daily? It's not just a one time thing and done with it and move on and live the rest of your life however you want and God's just going to somehow keep, you know, just sprinkling fairy dust all over your life and blessing and, and grace and mercy. No. Has my heart been turned? Love so amazing, the old hymn writer puts it, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Is there a fruitfulness in our lives that is evident to those around us that we are being changed and transformed from the inside out? Does God know me like this, or have I never truly turned my heart towards Him? Prone to wander, yes, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave. The God I love. And when I wake up, when I realize, do I run back to him in repentance? Or I just kind of, ah, not that big of a deal. No, we have to see how devastating sin is. How devastating pride is somehow thinking, we've got this. We don't. We don't. It's daily recognizing our greater, greater need for him and for his cleansing in our lives. Our confidence is not found in our words, it's not found in our actions, in our good works, but by His transforming grace that God begins in our heart when we turn our hearts and we surrender to Him. That is, sometimes it's a slow work, it's a painful work, and there's difficult and dry seasons. But that sincerity of that decision will be lived out, not perfectly, but progressively in our life. There will be progress for the believer in Christ. Paul wrote in Philippians 1, he says, he who started that good work in you will carry it on to completion. And the road will not be easy. We talked about that a few weeks ago when we talked about the narrow road. It's gonna be the narrow road that leads to eternal life is a hard road, not the broad road. That's the fun road. That's the easy road. That's the easy believism role. That's a greasy grace, smorgasbord Christianity. Take what you can, take what you like, toss what you don't. Take for and, 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 and so we, we examine our our lives in light of that. So true life and confidence, eternal life is not found in lip service or or in lifestyle, and second of all, true and eternal confidence is found in a deepening love for Jesus, causing radical obedience to God. In his word, Jesus says in here, in verse 21, the last part, he says, talks about the person who will go to heaven. He is the person who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What does he mean by that? Does the will of my Father. Jesus is saying, No one is going to heaven unless he or she is doing the will of the Father. The Greek word does there, you may want to underline that in your Bibles, the word does is present particle. Uh, in meaning meaning it's an ongoing behavior this is an ongoing desiring to do the will of god the father and you say well what is the will of of the father then tell me tell me I, i need to know this what is the will of of the father well you want to know what the will of god is the will of god is the word of god in short 66 books cover to cover That we see his word is authoritative in our lives, not a question mark, not for our comfort or our convenience to, 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 to take what we want and leave other parts out of it. God's word is his will. Is there a hunger for God's word submitting to its authority, not always liking it, not always enjoying it because it is at times, it cuts into what the flesh says wants in our lives it cuts into what the culture says is fine and is is acceptable even church or christian culture but a hunger for god's word submitting to its authority in our lives and through those 66 books we see his revealed will his revealed plan for us and at times you'll see these words explicitly in god's word this is the will of god and when you see that this is the will of God, take note of that. One of those areas, 1 John 3:23, we get to know the will of God. And, and what does John, 1 John 3, 23 tell, tell us? It tells us that the will of God is that we would believe in Jesus. He commands us, you need to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. And then he also says, and love one another. That's the will of God, that we love Jesus, that we believe in him, and that we're going to love others. Another example where it says explicitly, for this is the will of God in your life. And so you hear that perk up, First Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4, it says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's a big word, meaning to become like Christ, a progressing experience of becoming more and more like Christ in my character, in my words, in my actions from the inside out. And then he also adds in that you abstain from sexual immorality. It is the will of God that we pursue sanctification and we flee and run from sexual immorality. Well, what's sexual immorality? Any form, style, context of sex that is outside a committed marriage relationship between a man and a woman. End of story. Including pornography. God wants us to grow in that area. And if we say to him, no, thank you, that shows something about our heart. I'm going to pursue this, and I believe I can get God's forgiveness. That's a greasy, greasy, greasy grace. That is dangerous to hold on to and believe. And you think, what? Well, I can't. I'm so weak. We don't do it in our own willpower, we don't do it in our own strength. We can't do that. But when we surrender our lives to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in providing with us not only the desires to want to please and live for the Lord, but also provides the strength to be able to do that. When we stumble, when we fall into areas of sin, we don't excuse it and justify it. We repent. We are crushed by it. We, we, we make war on our sin. We get others to walk with us and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, help me. I'm struggling in this area. I need people to hold me accountable. He provides the body of Christ. That's one of his means of grace for us. But sadly, so oftentimes we hear this, I know what God's word says, but it goes against the flow of our flesh. It doesn't fit with the culture. So we ignore it. We justify it or excuse it. And I'm not just talking about areas of sexuality or, or other things. I'm talking about harboring, and this is huge within families and in the church of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about harboring bitterness and unforgiveness not willing to forgive a brother or a sister or a child or a parent or a coworker or someone who has hurt you that has maybe even hurt you to the core and you say, I'm going to hold on to that. You don't understand the gospel. You don't understand God's forgiveness. And you better check your heart. You may not even have truly received Christ's forgiveness in your life. We have warning and commands throughout the word of God that we are to forgive. You say, but they did this. I know, and forgiveness is a process, and it takes time, and again, it takes time, and and and, but when you start, and when you say, well, I'm still working on it, and still five years. No, you're harboring it. You got to let go. I'm waiting for them to, hey, did God wait for you to forgive you? No, while we were still, what was while we were singing in worship, what was that passage in Romans? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to clean up your act. He didn't wait for you to come and beg. He already did it. And so we forgive, even before people ask. It's a process. And sadly, over time, this can be a very sobering picture of what can start to reflect our lives when we live like this. And put that picture up now of the Bible. You have to start cutting out, starting to clip. <laughs> don't like this verse. Oh, this one makes, makes me feel a little uncomfortable. So we're just going to... And what happens over time is we go on to this one. Come on. And you just have to start going further and further and in, in just cutting out passages that disregard some of those uncomfortable areas we just don't like. The will of God is the word of God in our lives. And now, folks, I just, I want you to, I don't want anyone to miss what I'm saying, and, and, and no confusion, and this has caused me angst this week. I want to be super clear about this, because some of you might be thinking, okay, so in order for me to go to heaven, I have to obey the word of God. That sounds like a salvation by works. It, that sounds like I, I'm saved only if I do enough good things, and that, that's that. Teaching that understanding goes all against Scripture. So please do not hear that this morning. Read Ephesians 2. Write down Ephesians 2 and read it this week. It'll blow your mind away and cause you to worship. Because of what he has done for us. But in Ephesians 2, we're we're told that God transforms us by his Holy Spirit. That we were dead. We understand we are dead in our transgressions and sins, but made alive unto Christ. And, 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 And when we understand we are dead and we surrender and we... Turn our hearts to Jesus for in forgiveness and we are cutting away the sin in our lives. We are done with that, done with our agenda and, and living daily for his agenda. He provides power and strength through his Holy Spirit for us to be able to live. The word of God, for the word of God to become real in our lives. Sanctification, this growing, deepening love for Jesus begins at the moment of salvation but it won't be perfected in us until we are in heaven when we reach glorification. So doing the will of the Father, doing good works, it doesn't make a person a Christian nor does it get you to heaven but Christians... Do good works. That's the character of the Christian. Not how to get to heaven. It is the character of the Christian. And Jesus further develops or describes the person of faith. As well as the person who will hear those words. Enter into heaven or depart from me. He goes on to further describe it in verses 24 and following. He talks about what will happen to the person who does the will of the father and he'll describe and talk about the person who doesn't do the will of the father verse 24 everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them see the way these passages are connected i mean this is a great bible story i mean kids learn this there's flannel graph there's songs the wise man built his house upon rock. the rock wise man built and then the fool you know and the rains came down and the floods came. you know that's well that's what we're reading but you can't separate that in context from the verses before that, verse 24 again. Sorry, I, I, I felt a song coming on. Be thankful I didn't continue with it <laughs> for your ears to hear. That would not be good. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great, great was the fall of it. Jesus is telling us that we're all building on something. Either you are building your life on the rock or you're building it on sand. And either we are a wise builder or a foolish builder. And the storms, he's telling us, it's coming. The storms in life will come. And if it's not the storms in life, it will be the storm that will come one day of judgment that everyone will go through. And it is going to be the storm that will expose the foundations You'll even see that today. Yet yeah, times you'll see houses being swept away when there's hurricanes with flash flooding or, or various kinds of flooding that goes on. You'll see buildings getting swept away. Why? Because they weren't set solidly on a foundation. And, and the thing is that, that, as we see here, the wise builder, the one who hears the words and does them, they build their life carefully. And oftentimes their lives will be built even more slowly than others. Because that word rock means bedrock. means you got to dig down to the good stuff. you got to dig down past the sand in order to get to the rock. But foolish builders, they're cutting corners. It's like fat life in the fast, fast lane. Everything looks good on the surface. It looks like they built, you know, building a nice looking house. And, and, and the house comes together and it looks, ha ha, look at me. I'm setting my own standard. I'm going to be fine. My house will stand. The thing is, both houses can look similar. And no one, upon first looking at them, would notice that there's anything wrong with it. But the rains, the storms will come. And only one will stand. When we build our lives on the righteousness of Christ, on the word of God and obedience to his word, with an attitude of humility and dependency. Folks, there should be no reason for pride in our lives thinking we're awesome. You're not. I'm not. He is. He is. And when the storms come in this life or on the day of judgment, you will be standing, not because of your power, but because of the power of Christ in you. Because he has allowed your feet to be firmly planted as you have dug down And you have built your life on that rock. So I ask you this morning have you responded by faith? Are you in the process of being transformed? Are you building your life on the rock, on the Word of God? Are you committed to Him? Is He changing you, transforming you from the inside out? Have you been altered? Have others noticed there's something different about you? You're more loving, you're more caring. It's tough. I have to self-examine my life and I've got a long ways to grow and go in these areas. Are we responding to the word of God that we hear? Are we coming to him with dependency? I can't live this God, but your power in me, I can live this. It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. When we hear God's word proclaimed like we are this morning, are we gonna obey it or are we going to reject it? Are we going to respond in humility and in repentance and in and, and self-examination or just, oh, I'm good. What's for lunch? What are we doing for lunch? Hopefully I have the rest of the good weekend. Bit of a damper coming to church today. This can be. I said to people, I said this could be viewed a sermon as a church shrinker. It wasn't planned to be on on the long weekend where there maybe would be less people that that didn't play into this at all. Because people would say, oh, that, that doesn't tickle my ears. That didn't make me feel good. I'm not so sure. Hey, I'm the messenger. You take and you read and you study God's word and you try to get around these verses. You can't, nor can I. So these are serious words. Could be a church shrinker, but it could be an eternity grower. As we examine our lives. Has that good work began in you? Because Philippians, as Paul said, I already told you this morning, but I'll say it again, that he who has begun that good work will carry it on to completion. And are there areas that... You've allowed some some things to infiltrate your life that needs to be confessed, needs to be repented of and say, I'm done with it, I'm done with it, I am done with it and I'm going to tell the Lord and I'm gonna get some help, I'm gonna get some people around me to pray with me and for me and when I wanna run from that accountability, I am going to bend into it, I'm not gonna run from text messages or emails or phone calls or the questions that are asked, I'm gonna bend into that. There's so much at stake. Or is it just building on sand? Yeah, I'll do a little bit here and then... When we, stand, we can stand in confidence, not knowing in, in having it all figured out in our minds or not having you know, our lives all together, but when we understand what Christ has done and the sincerity of that decision, it's going to be evidenced in how we are desiring to build our life. Are you desiring to build your life on the rock today? Because thirdly, and this is the last thing and it's a short one, Thirdly, when my true and eternal confidence is found when my astonishment leads to loving allegiance. Look at verse 28. It says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. More than likely, At this point, Matthew, who is writing this down and and observing all of this, at this point, probably Jesus, as, as we talked about 11 months ago when we started this, Jesus would have been sitting and the crowd would have been standing around him. And so the crowd was standing. So at this point, Jesus stands up. And I wonder if Matthew all of a sudden, like, jumped up. and was like, okay, what's going on? What's going on with the crowd? And that word for astonishment, they were astonished. It means they were dumbfounded. They were... In silence. Why? Because Jesus presented them. Are you a wise or a foolish builder? Before, are you paying attention to false teaching? Or are you building your teaching on the word of God? And before that, are you building, are you on the narrow road? Or are you on the broad road? And so there's an astonishment there. And many people then and today have been impressed with Jesus. And they were astonished because and they were amazed at his authority. He taught like no one else had, had they ever heard before. And they were amazed at his sermon. It was the mic drop moment when he said, and, you, and ends with a great big crash, mic drop, sermon done. They were impressed with, with his authority. They were astonished and amazed by the words that he spoke. But they were forced to a decision just like we are being forced today, and you will decide today. Just don't tell me what to do. No, you will, you just will. We are either on the narrow road or the wide road. Either we are producing good fruit or bad fruit. Either our tree is good or our tree is not good. And either we're building on rock or we're building on sand. That choice is already being made. Where's my confidence? And astonishment and amazement must lead to a loving allegiance. Examining our lives, where we look at the beauty of what Christ has done in the cross and saving us and forgiving us, knowing we are not worthy. And yet he died for us before we even cleaned up our act. Examine our lives, Paul says in Second Corinthians 13. Does my life reflect the character of a kingdom citizen? Is there a persistent pre- proof of the presence of the power of God in my life. A dependency upon him. A love for him. My worship. Is it just lip service? Or is it flowing from the heart? Is he changing me from the inside out? Take the Beatitudes where we started 11 months ago. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the, those were the opening words. He's saying those who are morally and spiritually bankrupt. He says for those who understand that they have nothing to offer God. They're the ones who receive the kingdom of God. To nothing we gain at all. Have you come to Christ in this way? Realizing your spiritual bankruptcy. He goes on, blessed are those that mourn. That doesn't mean the mourning over the death of a loved one. Jesus didn't mean it in that context. Are we mourning over our sinfulness? Our spiritual bankruptcy? Are we mourning over that? And he says, and as we mourn, we will be comforted. Because we'll be comforted by his grace and his mercy. Blessed are the meek. Realizing that we have nothing to offer God. Coming hungry and thirsting for righteousness. Do you have a merciful spirit? Or is your acts of kindness and so-called mercy, is it just the right thing to do and it looks good and it's kind of what you're supposed to do? Do you forgive? Do you hold grudges? Are you merciful? The Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. And that will reveal through the fruitfulness and the sincerity of that decision that we have made to follow Christ. Has my astonishment led to a loving, growing dependence or deepening allegiance to Jesus? Do you love him? Do you truly worship him? Is he alive in your heart? Let's bow our heads. If you're here today and you're just Maybe think, ah, I'm good, I'm fine. Let's move on. Let's get this over with. Let's sing. Let's get out. And if in your heart there's not a desire in you for Christ, this is, if there's not a desire to know him more fully and just go through the motions, and if they were to put one of those heart monitors on you, basically your, your heart is pretty much dead. You need to be revived, renewed, or perhaps even transform for the very first time. Call out to him for mercy. Call out to him in this way. Surrender your life to him. Or maybe. You need to question if your heart. Has ever truly ever been changed. Today. For all of us. I believe God's word calls each one of us. To examine our lives. And, and as we do. It will result as we. Examine, and we respond in humility and repentance before God. It will also mean um, worship will flow, and thanksgiving, and tears, and rejoicing, and thankfulness. And so, this morning, our response, our response, it won't if you need to come to the front, come around the cross for you, if it's like, I gotta nail this home and I need the Lord's help in this, if you need to stay seated while we sing, is, if you need to get on your knees, if you need to go and spend this afternoon with the Lord in this, this is, this is eternal stuff. This is big stuff. This isn't just preaching and let's get, get on with it. Take time to examine your heart. And then pray for your own heart and then pray for the hearts of those around you and for those in our city that people would see the love of Christ, that no one would hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. Because he is. He's worth it and he is so worthy. He is so worthy because of what he has done.